Well, here we are. We're uh, in the second day of autumn. So summer is officially over. That means soon it's going to be October. And soon it'll be October the 31st. And you know what that means. It's Reformation Day on October the 31st. That is in October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses concerning the clerical abuses and indulgences on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And that event, of course, started the Protestant, what's called the Protestant Reformation by Protestants. It's called the Protestant Rebellion by Catholics. <coughs> and so as we enter this time of year, you know, the world celebrates witches and ghosts. And we celebrate being justified by faith. Isn't that good? Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. The scripture says in Romans 3.28, says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. I mean, that's just good news to me. I mean, this year on October the 31st, I'm going to go dressed in the armor of God as the righteousness of Christ. That is more frightening to the devil than anything he could ever think of. But it's no costume. It's what we really are. We really should be dressed that way and do that. You know, we've talked about this for several weeks. This is actually my last week to get to scheduled to teach this group this year. And so uh, uh, Joe will start teaching next time. And so he has October, November, and December. And so uh, I just want you to know this is one of the uh, greatest privileges that we have to be able to come and teach you the word. It's always exciting that we get to come do that. Am I right by that, by saying that? That is right. Isn't that correct? Okay. I mean, I was hoping you were going to say, no, you have another month. But I know. Joe. Joe's thinking, you mean he still has another night to go? <laughs> but we know this, that, that, that as Christians, there's a war going on. We've been talking about fighting a spiritual fight, a fight in the spirit. The devil... He's doing everything he can to make us think that the victory that Jesus won for us at Calvary is no longer effective and that it no longer does anything. The reality is the war has already been won, but there's an outlaw who is the devil who's deceiving people into believing that he, the devil, was the big winner and that he's continued to be the big winner. Our job is to enforce the victory that was procured for us by Jesus. Our job is to advance the kingdom of God into areas that, that right now are in darkness. For some of us, that our job is to advance the kingdom into our families, into, into our, our children and grandchildren. Some of us, we know all of us, is to advance the kingdom in our city. I mean, we need to know that there's a fight, and, and we need to advance the kingdom. We need to show people the good news that, that the king's conquest was over the devil, over sin, sickness, poverty, over all the curse of the world. It's a fight, but it's a fight of faith, and it's already been won in the blood of Jesus. Christianity sometimes is like a paradox. I mean, the scripture says we labor to rest. I mean, that almost doesn't make any sense, does it? The scripture says we give to receive. It tells us we die so that we can live. We fight a fight that's already been won. And all those are true and they're realities. The scripture teaches us that as disciples of Christ, we are in a war. There will never come a time that you and I, as long as we're on this planet, will not fight the fight of faith. There, will never, there, will, there are times when the devil will leave us for a season, but there's never a time when we can just say, okay, well, I don't need faith anymore. The devil finally has given up on me. He's not going to try anything else. The moment you think that, you're going to be in big trouble. The scripture says in Ephesians 6, this is, these are familiar verses to you. Verse 10 says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That verse, or those three verses, are talking about a fight. It's talking about wrestling. It's talking about a contest. It's talking about, that as Christians, our job, we're not fighting in the flesh. We're fighting spiritual entities. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. 
It's a war, is what the scripture there says. We don't war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now that's pretty powerful. It's talking about a fight. There's a war that's going on. And we're going to go back to that verse later on. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Talking about a fight. I mean, the, the, the New Testament is filled with fighting scriptures. The good news is, if we fight, we win. If we fail to fight, then we become prisoners of war or even casualties of war. The battle is the Lord's. He's already provided the victory. He's already won it. But as we talked about last time, we still have to dress for the battle. We still have to face the enemy. We still have to fight a fight of faith. It doesn't do us any good just to get mad at the devil and to yell at the devil. We have to learn how to fight a fight of faith, according to the Apostle Paul. We, we, we keep our eyes on him. We do what he tells us to do, and there's a fight. I'll tell you, we all have kids and grandkids that need, that need us to stand with them in faith, that need us to, to, to be a part of the advancing of the kingdom. Listen, I mean, our nation needs Christians to stand tonight. I mean, we need, we need not to be afraid, but to stand in faith. Believing God for what he said. I mean, you can barely watch the news without getting all in turmoil on the inside. But we've got to learn how not to fight from the turmoil, but to fight from the Spirit. Fight by faith. All right? And so we've been talking about that. And this, this, whole, this whole teaching that I've been doing has taken a turn that I initially didn't intend for it to take. I intended to teach the book of Second Timothy. And it hadn't happened. Maybe next year I'll do that. <laughs> but we've been looking briefly at the book of Second Timothy. We found out that there's a big difference between First Timothy and Second Timothy. We saw in First Timothy that that Paul Timothy has written to Paul about his big church that needed some help, and Paul instructed him on how to establish the government for this rapidly growing church. Well, in Second Timothy, Timothy has written to Paul, and he's expressed different concerns. Now, now this book, there's persecution by the Romans. Christians are considered the pagans and they're considered unpatriotic because they didn't worship the emperor and they wouldn't worship the god Roma. They wouldn't do that. At Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor, the church is now shrinking and there's persecution. People are defecting because of the fear of the Romans. I mean, they're even turning the church in. They're talking about the members are turning members in and the Romans are arresting them and those types of things. We've, we've talked about how the past, that, that Pastor Timothy is considering quitting. He's considering leaving. I mean, he's been hurt by his leaders, his elders. I mean, he's poured his life into people and they're leaving him high and dry. It's a whole different thing when you read 2 Timothy. I mean, it, it's just there. He's tempted to run out. And he's, it says, tells us here he's tempted to forsake the church and to forsake his association with the Apostle Paul. I'm going to tell you something. The Apostle Paul would have been a hard guy to work with, I think. I mean, you read, his, this isn't scripture, this is history. History says that the Apostle Paul was a short guy, he was bow-legged, he was bald, and he was tough. And I mean, he would have been hard to work with. I mean, you know the story how that, that, that Barnabas had taken John Mark and, and John Mark ran off on him. And then Barnabas comes back to, to, to Paul and says, hey, let's take John Mark again. And Paul's like, uh-uh. I mean, I can only paraphrase what I think he might have said, but like, we're not taking that coward with us again. He quit on us. We're not taking him. Well, later on, Paul said, I find him useful for the ministry. So he got it all fixed. But still, still, I mean, apparently he was a hard guy to work with. And now, now Timothy is his, his spiritual son, and he's thinking about leaving him. And so 2 Timothy is about Paul encouraging Timothy to stay with it and not give up. I mean, Paul, man, he, he was a tough guy. He wrote 2 Timothy from a jail cell. I mean, he is in jail. He's waiting to be executed. I mean, Nero pinned the burning of Rome on the church 
the leader of the church was Paul. Paul had been released from prison. He was rearrested because now he's the one. He's the leader of these pagan people called Christians. And they were always talking about fire and brimstone. And so he accused Paul of starting the fire. When actually we know that Nero started it because he wanted to build his own image in the city. And even while Paul's in jail, and if you, when you read through this book that maybe we'll read through after the first of the year, I mean, the people that were close to Paul, leaders in the church, they left him. I mean, he was standing on trial and no one was there to support him. Only Luke was there. I mean, they all left him. So Paul, he understood rejection in, in this book as he, as he talks to Timothy. I mean, you know, you get hurt by Christian people and it's like, I'm never going back to that church. I'm never going to talk to those people again. Well, Paul is talking to Timothy saying, hey, don't give up. Don't give up. There's more here to fight for. There's more here to do. So I'm going to read this passage that, that, that we've, we've read the last couple of weeks that we've, that we've been together, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. And you know these verses. Paul said, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. I love him saying that because when we go through a hard time and we talked about this, the thing we need to remember is the gift of God. We need to remember the call of God. We need to remember even though we're going through this hard thing and this thing is in front of us, that, that God didn't bring us here to, to, to let us die. He brought us here so we could stir up the gift and that his gift would get us through. Verse 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, last time we looked up, we looked up those words and talked about what they mean and that type of thing. But what I, what I want to point out here is that God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Paul is pinpointing the problem Timothy has. It's not so much anything, but he's got fear going on. He's afraid. And here it's interesting. When he talks about fear, he tells us the opposite of fear is power, the word is dunamis here, supernatural miracle power, love, agape is the Greek word, and that, that, that word agape has to do with the God kind of love, and of a sound mind. You overcome fear with a sound mind. The word sound mind, we looked it up last time, it means a delivered mind, a saved mind. And so he's talking about fighting a fight in the spirit realm, and he's, he's saying the only way we're ever going to fight a victorious spiritual battle is fighting in the spirit, but the battlefield is our mind. Mm, yes. we, our mind has something to do with our faith. Our mind has everything to do with overcoming fear. You see, our minds have been delivered through the new birth. Our minds have been delivered along with our bodies. You got to know something. You, your spirit wasn't delivered when you got born again. Your spirit was born again. It went from death to life. Went from separated from God to connected to God. Okay, so let me read you a couple of scriptures here. The mind, and this is where this is how I got off track, and I got us. I'm going to stay off track till I till, till I get through tonight. I think. <laughs> Fear is a problem among a lot of Christians. Specifically, the fear of worry. Okay, let me just say it very clearly. Worry is fear. It's a manifestation of fear. I talked to someone this week, and they looked at me, and they said, Well, I can't help it. I'm a worrier. And they said, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to worry. I looked at them, and I said, I don't worry. And they said, well, I just can't help it. Well, we're going to talk about that tonight. Maybe we can help it. Worry is fear. Many times Christians are paralyzed because of worry and because of fear. And that is associated with the way we think. Isn't it? It's interesting that I've gone on this tangent and that at church we're talking about the mind. I was out of town last week. We had to leave early this week, so I have no idea what they said the last two weeks. So if I disagree with them, they're wrong, and I'm right. No, I'm, I'm, no, that's not true. That's not true. That wouldn't be true. Let's read. Let, let me read this. This is from Philippians chapter 4. 
and we've read this before in this study, but let's read it again. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now, how often should we rejoice? Always. It's going to be difficult to worry and rejoice at the same time. Right? And so, now, if, if you're a worrier tonight, or you consider yourself a worrier, I bind condemnation. You get out of stuff the same way you got in it, one step at a time. And we just, we can't be, we can't be uh, condemned by things. You know, you just take one step at a time. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let the mo- let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So as, as Christians, the first thing we need to know is we need to be happy people. Right? The, the psalmist said, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Sometimes the saddest place on the planet is church on Sunday morning. <laughs> Christians get together and they frown for an hour. They're mad for an hour. I don't know why, but happy are the people whose God is the Lord. We should be happy people. We should be rejoicing. Yeah, but I got problems. We all have problems, but as Christians, we have the answer to the problems. And his name is Jesus. He paid for that. Jesus said, I've come that they might have and enjoy life in abundance to the full till it overflows. That sounds like a happy group of people to me. Right? Life is what we have. Then he says, this is the, the, the Apostle Paul. He says, be careful for nothing. Now, there's not a lot of wiggle room in these passages, and I didn't write them. <laughs> Number one, we rejoice all the time. And it says, be careful for nothing. The Amplified says, do not fret or have any anxiety about anything. So here, let's, let's talk about it here. I'm supposed to be happy, and there's never a time to worry. Wow. That's pretty straight up. That's what the apostle said. Now, he's right. he's, he wrote stuff from jail cells. I mean, he had his feet broken. He was left for dead. I mean, all these things happened to the apostle Paul, but he knew how to think. And in thinking, he said, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. He said, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And here's what happens, and here's what we need to be. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And it's like, just in case you didn't get it, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Here he's talking, he said, don't worry about stuff. Pray about it. Give thanks for the answers to it. And supernatural peace now comes and guards your heart and your mind. And he said, and if that doesn't work, I mean, if that's not enough for you, Think about these things. And he gives us a list of things that are permissible to think about. And if we're going to fight it, we need to understand that when we think and meditate is what he's talking about. Meditate on these. Meditate means to mutter, to utter, to speak to yourself again and again. Well, yeah, but if I don't worry, it means I just don't care. I care, so I've got to worry. Can I say something? Worry is not the same thing as care. I'm talking about care in a positive sense, not the anxiety part. Just because I'm not worried doesn't mean that I don't, I'm not concerned about the situation. Just because I'm not worried, that doesn't mean that worry is fear. Fear is, is unbelief. So tonight, what I'm going to share with you, we're going to see that fear and faith are choices that we make. We get to make the choice. Worry is fear. James 4.18 says that fear has torment. When you're worried, you're tor- it's self-inflicted torment. 
It has torment. Torment is just a little taste of hell in your life. It's a self-inflicted snack of hell. Isn't this good news so far? Mm. So let's see. Let's, let's see what let's find out what we need to do here. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to read you the, Luke's version of what we read in, in Matthew's gospel last time. Talking about Jesus. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are you better than fowls? I like that part. And which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? That's pretty powerful. I mean, we, we talked about the phrase take no thought means take no anxious thought, literally saying don't worry. Don't take the thought of worry. Don't take it. Here he's saying, I have a choice. I don't have to take the thought. The thought may come to me, but I don't have to take it. In Matthew it says, take no thought saying. I'll tell you, if it comes to you and you say it, you just took it. you got to make sure. See, we got to know I don't have to take that thought. I do not have to take it. I mean, here he says, don't take the thought. Three times in five verses, he says, don't worry. Three times in five verses. If he says, to don't worry, then that means it's possible for me not to worry. Right? I mean, would Jesus tell us to do something we can't do? No, no, he would never do that. And, and it's not like he's in heaven looking down and saying, don't worry. Well, I can't help but worry. Okay, well, if you can't, okay, I'll go to somebody else. <laughs> no, no, that, that's for all of us. He said, don't worry. It's interesting, the word stature, when it says here, which of you... Uh, can add, add, add to his stature one cubit. The word stature literally means maturity. Who can add maturity to, to, to his life? It's translated several times in the New Testament. It's translated age. Basically, if you translate it that way, Jesus is saying, which of you by worrying can add one hour to your life? Hmm. But can you add time to your life by worrying? Well, worry's not going to add to your life. Worry's going to subtract from your life. I mean, science is teaching us that all the time, that, 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 that anxiety and, 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 and pressure like that, I mean, that detracts, subtracts from, from our body. It has terrible effects on the physical body. I mean, it's, it's just not going to do it. I mean, the person who told me this week, they said, well, I'm just a worrier. I didn't, I didn't say this, but in my mind, these words came to me. No, you're not. You've become a worrier. God didn't make you that way. You've trained yourself to worry in all these situations. You've trained yourself. I love Jesus. He says, he says if you can't do these little things, like add an hour to your life, like, like the food, and all, if, if, if worrying is going to help those things, why would you worry about everything else? Why would you worry about the rest? What good is that going to say? You know, worry. What good is worry going to do? Well, I just think I got. I just can't have. I'm worried. What if tonight we got in united worry together? <laughs> I mean, we united in our worry. <laughs> would would that stop the Iranians from building a nuclear weapon? If we, if we just united worry, would that stop abortion in our nation? I mean, I mean we really are sincerely united in our worry. Is that going to do anything? Not worry, that's not going to do any good. I've never heard one person ever say this, for, this sentence, I'm going to tell you. Oh, thank you. I felt you worrying, and it helped me so much. <laughs> no, it hasn't helped anybody. Worry doesn't help 
anyone. The, the opposite of worry is going to help. Faith is going to help. Trust is going to help. Having belief in what God said and staying with what God promised us, that's what's going to help. And that's where the fight has to be. Worrying is not the fight. Worrying is laying down and letting the devil have what he wants. It's, 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 we, we need to know that. Well, yeah, but I trust God, but I still worry. No, no, either you trust God or you worry. They're not, they can't go together. You can be saved and love God and worry, but that's not trusting him. You see, we need to know that, that we, need to, we need to believe him. We need to have peace instead of worry. Peace is what he brings to us. Back to Philippians. He said, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There is no faith in complaining. There is no faith in worrying. We need to learn to be grateful for the answers. You know, things happen. I don't understand them, but I know who does. I know he understands. And I know he knows what to do. And we need to be grateful for his answers. All right, so the number one reason that people worry, that Christians worry, is because we fail to take control of our thoughts. We just let every thought come and just camp in there instead of, instead of aggressively waging war against them. We've already read these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I'm going to give you some hope here. The Bible says you can take every thought to the obedience of Christ. That means you have control of what you think. The mind is an amazing thing. I'm not talking about the brain here. I'm talking about the mind. The mind is not the physical organ of the brain because your mind is going to last forever. You have the mind of Christ. When you get to heaven, you're still going to be able to, to process these thoughts because it's not about the brain. It's about your mind. Does that make sense what I just said? I mean, Lazarus and the rich man, they had thoughts. They spoke words. I mean, Lazarus did from hell. He spoke to, to, uh, uh, to Abraham. And, and, and I mean, they had this conversation. So they were still thinking, even though his brain was rotting in his body. We have the mind of Christ. And that's what we have to take. We have to bring every thought captive. I mean, we can take control of them. Last time, we did the little illustration. We showed you how that we can take control of thoughts with words that we speak out loud. The only way to overcome the thoughts of the world is to say something out loud, to agree with God, say His word out loud, and then you can overcome the thought that came into your mind. Right? We must learn to put a guard over our minds by speaking the word continually day and night, according to Joshua 1.8. We speak the word. We make sure it's always in our mouth. And when the thoughts come, we say what, what we're supposed to say. I love it. He, the Bible says, we read Philippians 4.8. Let me read it from the Amplified. It says, For the rest, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of reverence and is honorable and seemly, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and lovable, whatever is kind and winsome and gracious, if there be any virtue, if there be any excellence, if there be anything worthy of praise, think on and weigh and take, take account of these things. Fix your minds on them. I mean, that just said that I can fix my mind on the right thing. I can take control. Here's what I know. My mind is my mind. You nor anyone else can make me think anything I don't want to think. If I actively choose what I want to think. All right? It's a battle, but I can choose life instead of death in my thoughts. I mean, we've got to learn to take control of what we think. Colossians chapter 3. 
Verse 1 says, did you know there's a lot in the scripture about the mind? There's a whole lot in the scripture about the mind. There's also a whole lot in the scripture about your words because your words and your mind are connected to one another. Here's what Colossians chapter 3 says. If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Well, here's the reality. It's a spiritual reality. We receive it by faith. We are risen with Christ. The next verse says, if you've been risen with Christ, it says, seek the things that are above. It says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. The little phrase, set your affection, means to exercise your mind. Exercise your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. I can choose what I want to think. I mean, I am risen with Christ. I can do that. Too many times Christians allow toxic thoughts to deprive them of the peace that passes understanding. We just keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it when we need to get up and say what God promised, say what God said. People think that they have to take every thought that comes their way. And I mean, that anxiety is just eating them up. And the worry is shortening their life. The scripture says in Romans 8 verse 6, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There's where we want to be. We want to have a mind that brings life and peace. See, life and peace are a choice of mind. I can choose that. We're not limited to the carnal weapons of the world's opinion. We have a supernatural weapon called the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. We can use that. Man, last time we read out of Isaiah that we can forsake our thoughts and take his thoughts and make his thoughts our thoughts and begin to speak out loud his thoughts. So the number one people worry is because they fail to take control of their thoughts. The number two reason that people worry is, this is going to sound like I'm saying the opposite thing, but the number two reason they, they worry is because they fail to give control of their thoughts when they need to give them give it away. Listen to this verse. We read this just a moment ago. First Peter chapter five, beginning in verse four, verse five says says that God resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. Then in verse six it says, "Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober." Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walking, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. God resists the proud. He resists those that the only help they can get is from God. They can't do it themselves. Humility brings peace, God's favor, to accomplish Humility uh, brings grace to is his favor to accomplish his plan. Now there's a connection here. There's a connection. Humility is casting my care on him. The word first time that word care is used, it means anxiety. Humility is casting my anxiety on him. Pride is not casting my anxiety on him. And keeping it for myself. And God resists that. Humility is when I cast it on him. But look at this connection. Be sober. Be vigilant. The devil is look, he's like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. If we read all that in context, sobriety, vigilance, is talking about whether I keep the anxious care or cast it away. When I'm worried, the devil is looking for that person because that's the one he can devour. If all my thoughts are, oh my, we're going broke. There's no way we can get, we're going to go broke. That's the, that's the one the devil can get to. Because that's the fear. That's all those things. The scripture says we need to cast all of our care, all of our anxiety. I mean, that brings grace. That's what we need to have. Listen, there are some things in this life that I simply cannot control. And there's nothing I can do about it. 
those are the things I have to cast on him and not touch them again with my thoughts. I've got to find something different to think about. I've got to cast it on him. I think I've told you this before. The word cast here is only used one other time in the New Testament, this Greek word, and it's when they cast their garments on, on, on Jesus' donkey because the donkey was built to carry them. Jesus is built to carry the worry, built to carry your anxiety. He's built to do that. I mean, we need to know that the devil wants to devour us. There are things that I can't control, and those worrisome thoughts, I've got to give him control at that point in time. There are just some things we can't control. David and his men came back to Ziklag. We talked about this story last time. And they cried, and they cried, and they cried. And it didn't help. The scripture says they cried until they couldn't cry anymore. And it didn't help. The only thing that helped is when David encouraged himself in the Lord. Basically what David did was he cast it over on the Lord. And when he did, God was able to speak to him and give him an answer that he would have never understood otherwise. The worry wasn't going to help him. He cried and he cried. Jeremiah 33.3, the Amplified says, Call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things, fenced in and hidden, which you do not know, do not distinguish and recognize, have knowledge of and understand. It's calling on him. It's coming to him. For the answer, I don't know. It says he then will do that. David had to call on God and receive his grace and his help. When we call on him and we cast it over on him, he can show us what to do. I mean, sometimes we got to acknowledge that there are things beyond our control and beyond our knowledge and that we know someone who's big enough to handle it. When those worrisome thoughts come, we've got to know how to get rid of them, how to cast them over on him. I heard an illustration uh, not too long ago. I'm not a pilot, of course, but, but when, when, when pilots are flying a plane, I used to always think that, you know, you got the pilot and you got the other, the other pilot, they're both flying the airplane, and that way one can take a nap while the other one's flying. Well, if the flight is long enough that somebody can take a nap, they have to have three pilots or even four in some of the major airliners. There are two pilots in the cockpit of the plane that you're on. One pilot is called the pilot flying, and the other one's called the pilot monitoring. The flying pilot, he's in charge of flying the aircraft. He's in charge of making sure it's level, not upside down, not going nose down. He's in charge of that. The other guy's the pilot monitoring, and his job is to monitor all the gauges. And he watches the gauges, making sure that, that the fuel is right, that the engines are right, and all those things. I mean, pilot flying, pilot monitoring. Sometimes there's a need for the pilot flying to change jobs with the pilot monitoring. I mean, say he needs to do something different. And so they have to change jobs. In order for that to happen, the pilot flying has to say to the pilot, to the pilot that's, that's monitoring, he's, he, he says he's going to give him control of the aircraft. He has to verbally say, I'm giving you control. I need to do whatever it is. And this guy says, okay. But he doesn't take control until the pilot flying says, your control. At that moment, the pilot monitoring becomes the pilot flying. And the other one becomes the pilot monitoring. But they have to verbally say your control. There are so many stories of airplanes that have crashed because the pilots didn't communicate that clearly. And the one thought he was flying and the one thought he wasn't. And they're getting ready to crash and one's pulling on the, on the stick and the other one's pushing on the stick. And, and it winds up being disastrous because nobody knew who was in control. We have to understand... We must give control of certain thoughts to God on purpose and verbally give him control by releasing his word. Man, we give him control on purpose, and on purpose we choose to think the right things. I found out a long time ago, God cannot be my co-pilot. And those things, he needs to be pilot flying. And I need to acknowledge your control. I want to read to you from John chapter 2. This is beginning of verse 1 from the Young's Literal Translation because I think it says something I want, want us to hear. It says, In the third day a marriage happened in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And also Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. 
And the wine having failed, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, Wine they have not. Jesus saith unto her, What to me and thee, woman? And not not yet is mine hour come. His mother saith to the to the, 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 the servants, Whatever he may say to you, do. We gotta learn how to yield control. It's interesting. Jesus' mom comes to him, and there's a lot of things that are going on in this passage, but she comes and says they run out of wine. And here's what Jesus literally says to her. He literally says, what does that have to do with you and me? They are guests at the wedding, and Jesus, she says they don't have any wine. I mean, she knows something's different about Jesus. He's been, he's been baptized in the Spirit. When he got up out of the water, the dove came on him. Something happened. He went to the wilderness, kicked the devil's tail for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes off the mountain with these disciples. He comes to this wedding, and she knows who he is. She's known all of his life, but now something is different. And he walks up, and she's, she's like, whoa. This is my own interpretation of all this. She's like, whoa, wow, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. She comes up to him. She says, son, they're out of wine. He's like, what does that have to do with us? She's like, yeah, well, I know what you know. And he's like, well, I know you know what I know, but what does that have to do with us? I know what you know. I know something is different. I know it's supposed to happen now. They need some wine. And Jesus, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? Did you know when you read the Gospels, Jesus didn't fix everything while he was here? He, 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 didn't, he healed everyone that came to him. But he didn't heal everyone. I mean, if they came, when he went to his hometown, it says he could only heal a few because they had no faith. He healed the ones that came. But they just didn't come. He went to the pool of Bethesda. Everybody's sick. Went to one guy. And said, are you earnest about being well? And the guy said, you know, you know the story. I don't have anybody put me in the water, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And, and he got up. He only healed that one guy, though. He didn't heal everyone. He didn't fix everything. He didn't do that. He only did what he knew to do. He was so submitted. I love Revelation 3, verse 20. The Lord is speaking not to lost people, but to church people, because it's a letter written to a church. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Notice Jesus did not say, Behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm coming in. He said, I'm knocking. If is a big word here. If any man will open the door, I'll come in. If he opens. See, the choice to open the door is ours. I mean, the same is true with casting our anxiety on him. The choice is ours. I can choose whether I worry or whether I don't. I may have to choose that 30 times an hour but I can choose. Worry is a habit for most people. They've just trained themselves and trained themselves and they, they are artful with their worry. They can worry when there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> and they're worried because there's nothing to worry about and so they get worried. <laughs> I can choose to negate that one worrisome thought at a time, but I have to open the door not, I, not everything is up to me. Jesus said, what is that to us? If I can't fix it, what is that to me? I can't fix it. I've got to give it to him because only he can. But he's not fixing it fast enough. That's not for me to figure out. Not one time have I ever been his God. Not one time. Worry says, I'm in control. I'm the deliverer. I'm the healer. It's up to me. Listen, I think we need to ask ourselves that question. What is that to me and you? 
What is that to me? Why is it mine to do? You see, I don't have control over lots of things. I've got to learn to yield that thought to him. I've got to take control and yield yield control of that thought. See, our job is to do what Mary said to the servants. Whatever he says to you, do that. Whatever he says. I know this. He never said to anybody at any time, now it's time to worry. He never one time said, oh, Father, they are so messed up. I'm worried. When he worries, we can worry. He's not worried. He already knows the answer. He's already seen the conclusion. He already understands it. I'm not in control. I must yield control if I can't help what's going on. And I need to learn how to enjoy my salvation. Ooh, isn't this fun? Mm-hmm. See, I don't know how many times you've ever read the Gospel of John, but John in that Gospel several times referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. We I mean, just think about that. He's writing the book. <laughs> and over and over he says, the disciple that Jesus loved. If you had not figured it out, it's me, by the way. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> Now, do you realize that nobody can believe that for you? You get to choose that. The scripture says in John, Jesus was praying to the Father, and he said, and I know that you love them as much as you love me. If John was a disciple that Jesus loved, so am I. Jesus loves me. I am the apple of his eye. You realize what that means. It's talking about your pupil. Your pupil is the most protected part of your whole body. Something starts coming to your eye, even if it's a little gnat, your whole body goes in protection mode. We're the apple of his eye. We're that important to him. We're the disciple that Jesus loves. Listen to these verses in John 20, 21, verse 20. Says so then Peter, now Jesus has just talked to Peter about do you love me? And they've had this big discourse. Says so then Peter turning about, see at the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's it, I love it. John said, Yeah, they're walking along and, and Peter sees the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> me, of course. He saw him following, which also leaned on his breast at supper. And that's something. They're at the Lord's Supper, and John is leaning on Jesus. I mean, he's got his head right on his chest. And, and, and Peter says, who's he talking about? John goes, I'll, I'll ask him. He loves me. <laughs> I mean, John, he, I mean, he's, he, says, he says, the one that leaned on his breast and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? I love Jesus' answer. Jesus said to him, if I will tarry, if, if, he, if, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I mean, they're walking along, and I mean, it's like Peter looks at, well, Lord, what about Golden Boy over there? What are you going to do with him? Because Jesus has told told Peter how he's going to die. He's like, what about that guy? Surely he's going to get something worse than me. I think that's what he's thinking. (laughs) And Jesus said, what is that to you? Why are you worried about that? I've given you an assignment, just do that. See, many things are nothing to us. It's not for us to know. It's certainly not for us to worry about. It's none of my business. They're too big for us. We don't have the shoulders to carry them. Jesus said, that's none of your business. I learned a long time ago. I don't have to know it. Someone came to me the other day at the jewelry store and we're going to do some business about a deal. And and they looked at me and they said, I bet you have a lot of questions. To talk about their personal life. And I said, no, ma'am, I have no questions. It's none of my business. And she was like, oh, okay then. I don't have to know. I don't have to know everything. Don't have to know it. I don't even have to think about it. 
My job is to simply declare your control. You control it. I cannot handle it. Man, some things are just between God and somebody else. I learned a long time ago, man, there are things I cannot touch with my thoughts because they will eat me alive. I just can't touch them. Why would I torment myself? Why would I take a taste of hell about that? By the way, I'm not perfect at anything I'm talking to you about tonight. But I know there are things I just can't touch. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I think this is the last verse we'll look at. It says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Listen to me. Some things are just for him. My job is to focus on the things he's revealed to me. If he gives me the answer, I do that. But until he does, my job is to say, your control. This one's too big for me. It's your control. You've got to take it. I yield these thoughts to you. My mind is my mind. I don't have to take every single thought. If I focus on what he said, faith will rise, peace will come, and I don't have to be anxious for anything. Let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you that we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. Lord, I thank you that we are not under the curse of the world. I thank you, God, that we have the salvation that comes only from you. Father, I pray tonight that revelation comes in our hearts. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.